You are listening to the Hello Sport Podcast. What's up, punters and dribblers? Welcome back to another episode of uh, Hello Sport. The home of unqualified opinion and unwavering bias. Here by myself here for this intro. Uh, got Ray Hadley on the show this week, uh, which was cool. We recorded it, Ray, a fair while ago. Um... It might have even been before the NRL season finished, I think, Toby. I can't remember. But so I couldn't remember exactly if there was anything that was dated in there, but felt like it was just going to be easy just to jump on and say this was pre-recorded from uh, a few weeks back. But shout out to Ray for coming on. Fucking one of the biggest dogs in the Australian media game. And it was cool to sit down and have a yarn with him. So here he is, Ray Hadley. You said before you got to get up in at five thirty and read the paper. What's your day to day look like at the moment? Like to, you're very across events across Australia, across the globe. Um, you do a three hour show. Like, what's your day look like? I suppose to put that all together. Well, I made a decision a long time ago that sort of if I wanted to do this gig as opposed to football that I did previously, I'd have to work a lot harder. So the only way I can get across everything I want to be across and ad-lib my way through it without scripts is to get to work at four o'clock, spend two hours reading The Telegraph, The Herald, The Courier Mail because we broadcast into Brisbane, The Australian, The Financial Review, which I don't understand. <laughs> and then... Neither do I. Yeah, no. No, no idea. Neither do my listeners, hopefully. <laughs> anyway, so then um, we have a meeting about quarter to six with three staff, I designate their roles, do this, you do that, I'll do this, I'll do that. I write a lot of my own stuff. And mainly, because I've been doing it so long, most of the stuff comes off the top of my head. And I'm blessed with a fairly retentive memory, so I can basically uh, retain a lot of information uh, without too much prompting. And so by the time I get to about 8.30, I've done everything. And there's other things to do. You've got to record commercials for network stations, you know, that could take you 20 minutes to 30 minutes. It might be 10, 30 seconds or, you know, five one-minute commercials for a different network. Mm. And then by 8.30, your intro's done, which I do myself. Everything's done. And so by 9 o'clock or seven minutes past nine, you're set to go. And I find if ever I cut corners, in other words, I think I'll ever sleep in, well, it becomes so much more difficult to be attuned to what I'm doing by the time I get to 9 o'clock. Mm. What time are you going to bed? Because sometimes I'd say you're up at 4 in the morning doing the show, mm. but then you're on like NRL 360 of a night, and I'm like, when's this man sleep? Well, I mean, I figure I can get away with about five or six hours, so you know, I'm getting a bit older too. So, you know, 9 o'clock I normally pull up stumps, you know, and like you won't find me out at midnight. No. Nah. I mean, I just can't do it. I can't back up. I mean, I haven't been able to do it for a long time, not just because I'm getting older. But, you know, you've got to have a certain amount of sleep to make sure you can cope with what the next day is. But, yeah. um, you know, and the other thing, I, I get afternoons off, you know. I'm, I'm off here at midday, as my young bloke keeps telling me. He said, you work three hours a day, 15 hours a week. You're kidding, aren't you? <laughs> Most people are doing 40 or 50. So, you know, you you knock off at midday. And when I'm not, I've got a problem with my leg at the moment. When I don't have a problem, I play golf two or three days a week. And that's with a few mates and we just knock around the golf course, have a bet and you know, sledge each other and have some fun. That's the downtime. I turn the phone off for those four hours mm. yeah. so that no one can find me. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, so it's not... Um, look, I think it's a bit... 
the football became second nature a long time ago where you just do it because it's just what you've always done. And now I've been doing this gig for over 20 years. It also becomes second nature. Mm. Uh, you've got fallback positions where you feel comfortable what you're doing. Do you prefer one to the other? Like, I guess there's an element of perform- performance in both, but mm. three hours on radio, you do have to be entertaining and keep people's sort of attention. Do you feel like that's a little more performative than calling the footy? Yeah, yeah. It's much more demanding. Yeah. Much more. De- I mean, the hardest job I've ever done is call races. That's the hardest thing I've ever done because the powers of concentration for that 90 seconds, you know, plus the preparation for the half hour before is very difficult. And then the other difficult thing I've done is the Olympics. Swimming's okay because they don't change lanes. But you do <laughs> you do the 5,000 or the 3,000 people chase when you've got, you know, four Ethiopians and four, three Kenyans and, you know, other people you don't recognise. That becomes hard work. You've got you've to work at that. So in order of preference, I'd say race calling's the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, and then Olympics football initially was very difficult because I had to make the transformation from race caller to football commentator. Now it just, it happens. It just, I don't have to think about it too much. And I'd say in the last 10 years, the next part of my career, the talk, the talk programs became second nature as well. So I still do a lot more preparation. I mean, I'm calling a game, say, um, I'm doing the opening of Allianz Stadium and I don't do many football games. I do Origin and Grand Final and fill in when they're short or something. But I'll probably have to do a, a spend the afternoon preparing for that game, whereas normally I wouldn't. Mm. Because if you're calling every week, you know, it's very rare that you're the players change, you know. And, mm. and so on Friday for that game, I'd do probably two or three hours of preparation to get ready for the game at 8 o'clock that night. Just memorising players' names? Yeah, particularly with all the Polynesian names. I mean, it becomes more different. Fa'asuma Ala'awi. Yeah. Mm. I mean, you know, I mean, it used to be when I started in 87, Smith, Brown and, you know, Jones. Mm. And it's far more different now. So, you know, and you don't want to um, demean the player by not pronouncing his name correctly. So there's a bit more work required and then checking pronunciations. And there's books that are issued by all the clubs about pronunciations. And oh, some, really? Yeah. South Sydney do a video. Make it That's easier. Easy, they do yeah. a video. Of, That's uh, way easier than a book. Yeah, because you got exactly. to, you're still interpreting a little bit with the reading. Yeah, of a, and then you just write it down phonetically and try and get it right. And then mm. if you're doing it every week like I used to, it becomes second nature. You just you know it rolls off the tongue because mm. you do it every week. But when you don't do it regularly, as I don't do it now, it becomes more difficult. So, but I mean the rules really change. There's nuances about the rules and little things that happen. But the basic structure of the rules from 1908 exist in 2022. Mm. And, you know, uh, they, one of the things I learned very early in 87, I, I, I studied with Cole Pearce, who was then the caller, a former international referee, and I got my referee's ticket. And some of the things he taught me back in the early 80s haven't left me about, you know, so it becomes instant nature, a bit like a referee making a decision. You think, oh, what do you do there? And then you start thinking about it and think, well, that's the correct decision he's made there. And I think Ray Warren also taught me those things. He's a was it when he was calling a passionate advocate for rules and understanding the rules. And I think most callers these days also have a, a fairly broad knowledge of the rules of the game. Mm. You were saying, you know, a couple of years is sort of when you think you're going to pull up stumps. Mm. Uh, is that just in time for you to hit the magical 100 origin number? Is that in your sights? Yeah. Uh, Not a bad one to go out on. Ra- Rabbits is a mate of mine and he, he got to 99. So <laughs> it was time to pull it up. Uh, Hadley, I don't want to be a, a man that's... Covered by stats. So I said, oh, I'll do 100 then and beat you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he said, that's right, you low bastard. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, um, 
I think I'll get to um, I think I'll get to ninety nine in for the second Origin in um, in two thousand and twenty four. Mm. So I suspect I'll just go one more, one more, and get the one hundred. I mean, look, as a kid that came from a housing admission estate, to think that I'm going to call one hundred Origin matches and go to six Olympics and you know, rate number one on a morning show for one hundred and fifty surveys mm. is a bit, I mean, surreal. It, you know, and so, whereas Rabbit said it, you know, it didn't mean much. It means a lot to me. To Do you reflect done. on all of that very often? Obviously, I guess, like, once you're in something for long enough, it becomes mm. what you're used to. Mm. But as you say, kid from housing commissions, all that, and to have achieved what you've managed to achieve over your career, do you spend much time reflecting on that or do you catch no. yourself sometimes? You haven't got time. I mean, um, haven't got time. And it, reality checks, you know, I kept, you know, the kids, the four kids and... Five grandkids now keep you in check. I mean, it's a job. Mm. My dad was a really hard-working butcher who died at 46. Mum worked in a factory um, and, you know, worked really hard, both of them, for their entire lives. Dad's life cut short. Mum lived until she nearly got to 80. But, um, no, I, I, don't, I don't reflect on it. I, I think I'm very fortunate. I think probably things that have happened in my career uh, have made it very fortunate, like... One of the big things was doing the Olympics in my home city of the year 2000 when I was just happened to flum to be the lead commentator uh, for the network for track and field and swimming. So I did Ian Thorpe's 4x100 one night and a couple of nights later I did Cathy Freeman's 400 in front of 100,000 people at the Olympic Stadium in my home city and went home to sleep my own bed. Mm. You know, things like that I reflect on and how lucky I am. Uh, but no, nah, not really. I mean... You know, I think people who get preoccupied with successes they've had probably start to reflect on them and don't work as hard as they used to. And I probably am working harder now than I was when I first started back in the early 80s. Do you think back to nights like that very often? Like Thorpe's 4x100, like yeah. that's so famous, Cathy's no. as well. Well, Cathy Freeman's the best thing I've ever done. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, I was going to ask, where does that rank? Well, if you examine, I mean, you know, I've some great origin games over the years. Mark Coyne's try in 94 in that uh, northeastern uh, corner of, mm. the, of the old Sydney football stadium. But Cathy Freeman, um, if I examine everything I've done professionally... You never get perfection. Mm. You get about, you know, eight out of ten if you really, you know, don't kid yourself. I got nearly to a nine that night. There were 100,000 people there. You think, and I think the final stages, I said, this is her date with destiny. It was not rehearsed. It just came out. Mm -hmm. It just came out of her mouth. This wonderful young Australian creating history. 100 goal for Australia and a goal to Cathy Freeman. Her date with destiny. And... I felt at the 200, I had them all covered. And there were some difficult names. Ogun Koya, I think, got the bronze medal, you know. And so I think I had them covered as they went down the back straight. And I'd seen her at the previous Olympics, you know, win silver. Uh, and Perec was out. The French girl didn't come to Sydney, so she was the favourite. And I thought the only thing that's going to beat her is, is nerves. And so I was really anxious to contain my own nerves and my excitement for her as they moved down at about the, um, about the 200 as they, they sort of left that corner and started to go down. And all I remember is this sea, this is before mobile phones, I suspect, sea of flashlights following her down the track. Just this sea of, and, and sort of I tried not to be diverted by the sea. Of, but I, I knew then that I, ha I had, was in control. Yeah. Mm. I was in complete control 
probably for the first time in my broadcasting career, and I thought, I'm going to get this. And all she had to do was win. Mm. That would have buggered the story up <laughs> if she'd run a second. But she won. Yeah. She won brilliantly. And, um, I mean, I think about the expectations on that young woman, as she was then, she had the expectations of Australia on her shoulders. Mm. 20-odd million people were expecting her to win, and she did do it. Mm. And it's rather unique for someone to do that in the circumstances she did, to win when everyone thinks you're going to win, because more often than not, you get beaten. How do you approach an event like that? You say 20 million Australians expecting you to win, like mm. unrivaled pressure, home Olympics, year 2000, 100 and what, 10,000? Yeah, over 100,000. How do you prepare for a call like that? Well, you see, you do the you do the heats and the semis, and then you get to the final. So you know you're pretty attuned to who's going to make the final, and you get the you get the lanes, and the fastest qualifier comes from lane four and lane five, you know, and, and you work your way in. And they, because I'd done five Olympics previously, you got to account for the stagger. You know, the four hundreds are staggered, and they run in lanes for the entire lap of the the track, and so, you know. I didn't rehearse what I was going to say, but in my mind, um, that afternoon, uh, and don't forget I was working all afternoon. I was at the track calling other races. Mm, yeah. Not as if you just walk up and someone, you know, pulls a chair up and says, off you go, do the 400. You're doing the heats of all the other events through the course of the day and you've been at the swimming and that was remarkable. You, you go to the swimming centre at Homebush and you walk from there straight to the Olympic Stadium to do the next event. Mm. And the swimming heats would be in the morning and the swimming's the first period of the games always and then the finals and you transition to the track and field and so um yeah I, I i i just felt as if i could do it and i was confident and i became even it's funny through races there's a nervousness attached to it and and through calling there's a nervousness but i just felt on that particular night i was really confident about what i was doing um and and i guess that was starting calling you know 20 years before that the dogs that happened dogs at Bulleye, uh, you know, and uh, say the same as Ray Warren, both their backgrounds were in race calling. And I, as I said earlier, that's the most difficult job I've ever done. And you can take any race caller, and even the modern day, probably the best ma race caller is Matthew Hill mm. in Melbourne. And I worked with him at the Beijing Olympics when he got crook then in London. He's, he's the best young caller I've ever, ever encountered. He's brilliant. He could, I, I did the sprints, uh, in London and he said to me what do you want me to do and I said you do the long races son yeah. you, but you're better than me at them and he is he's a brilliant brilliant caller and and so if you can call races like he calls races or like Darren Flindell does in Sydney or young Josh Fleming in Brisbane if you can do that you can do anything and what what do you think is the nature of racing that sort of translates so well to calling all sports is it is it how short and sharp you need to be? Yeah. There's so much going on and they're moving and they're at a distance and you've got the corner to deal with, all that sort of thing? Yeah, it's about, it's about learning, uh, you know, studying the colours of the jockeys as they're in the mounting yard, then being legged up onto the horse and as they go to the barriers and things like that. But I think it's more the concentration level required. I mean, uh, you, most race callers I know get out early, earlier than you think they should. Uh, John Tapp retired at the peak of his career. Ian Craig the same. Um, others that go on longer than they should start to diminish, you know, their the memory of their ability mm. because it's such a it's such a taxing thing to do. Um, and even the young blokes that do it now, I mean, their powers of concentration are quite incredible. I think that's where it comes from. So 
your powers of concentration uh, enshrined in you as a race caller as you progress to other... And not all race callers go to other things. I mean, I was very lucky. I went from that to rugby league and the first thing that happened to me in 87, the program director, John Brennan, said, you sound like a race caller. I said, that's because I am. <laughs> so I had to learn not to be a race caller again and, and pick up a different tempo and a different speed to calling rugby league. You're talking about... Uh, well, you've got like an interesting... Uh, sort of origin story or at least like from you know where you came from and how you got into radio but did you were you calling before you got uh into driving cabs or was it you were driving cabs to like how did all of that sort of come to be okay well um i wanted to be a race caller i left school in 1972 and i went to the sydney morning herald which was the big classified section and i couldn't find a job for a race caller so i looked and looked and looked and i thought well where do you start? I mean, I'm from a housing business state in Dundas Valley. I mean, I wasn't supposed to be someone who went into the media. And so I saw a job for a trainee auctioneer. And I'd spent a lot of time as a kid going to auctions in the bush and I thought, well, that's sort of like a race caller. So I got the job with a company called Pitsun and Badgery. And I did that from 17 till about 24 and I got my licence. So I was fully licensed auctioneer and I was trained by one of the best, a bloke called Ron Vockler. And I was a you know, pretty good auctioneer, a young auctioneer with a lot to learn. But I just wanted to be a race caller. Mm. And so I quit my auctioneering job and uh, I got in a car, an old EH I had, and I travelled up the coast and down the New England highway. I went to 2HD, 2KM, Kempsey, <sighs> probably 2RE at Taree, and I dropped tapes in, you know, little cassettes tapes everywhere, and I didn't get a, a, a reply from any of them. So I came back and went to 2DU Dubbo, 2TM Tamworth, 2AD Armadale, 2PK Parks, 2MG Mudgee, you know, and it took me about three weeks to go up and down and, you know, I had no money. I'm impressed by the memory of all <laughs> yeah, the radio yeah, so stations right, as much so as anything right. else. Well, there's many of them are still there. So anyway, I came back to Sydney and I was living with my mother because I couldn't afford not to. And uh, she, mum said, you're mad. You had a really good job. You, get a, you had a company car, you, had, you know, had expense account good auctioneer and here you are chasing a dream. And I said, oh, well, what's all I'm going to chase? And then it became evident that I couldn't get a job anywhere. So uh, a mate of mine said, why don't you get a cab licence? And I said, how's that going to work? And he said, well, then you can sort of chase your dream, drive a cab on, say, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday night and chase your dream on weekends, which is one of the reasons I went that direction because auctions were happening more on the weekend. I was doing general auctions, not house auctions. And... Um, so I did, I got the cab licence and I started to earn some pretty good coin because it was cash, no cab charge dockets back in those mm. days. You could get some cash out of it. So finally, I got a job calling the dogs at Appen. Uh, I don't know how I got it, but I got it. I put an audition tape in and got it and that was, I thought, oh, how good am I? I've got a job calling the dogs. 15 races, 12.45 the first, the last at 4.45, I got $36.50 for doing the 15 races. Oh, my God. <laughs> and um, what I used to do was drive the cab on a Friday night, knock off about 4 a.m. By this time, I was living in a single room at Guildford. I'd go to Guildford. I'd have about four or five hours sleep. I'd jump in the cab. I'd start work again. I'd work my way out to Campbelltown. And then I'd make sure I was at Appen by about half past 11, because the lady who was the wife of the course manager used to cook a great baked dinner, and I'd have the, the best meal I'd have all week out there uh, for that lovely lady. Sid was the Blake's name, I can't think of his wife's name. Might have been Eileen. 
Anyway, I'll only cook a baked dinner. I'd have that. I'd go up and call the races, park the cab in the car park. After the last race, go out and jump in the cab, drive back to Campbelltown rank and go into town. And uh, the old bloke that rang the course was a, a formidable old fellow called Jock McDonald. And after about six months, I went to him and I said, Mr. McDonald, I said, can I be yarn? He said, what's wrong, son? I said, any chance of a little bit more money? I said, the $36.50, I said, it doesn't go far. He said, how much do you want? I said, could you reckon you'd find $50? He said, $50? He said, you're travelling all right. You come every week in a cab. I said, Miss McDonald, I drive the bastard. <laughs> he said, you what? I said, I drive it. He thought a bloke was bringing me in the cab. <laughs> so he said, you drive the cab? What do you mean you drive the cab? I said, I drive the four o'clock in the morning, then I get up at nine o'clock, come out here, and he said, oh, you can have $50. So if you're driving a cab, we can't have that happening. <laughs> so he gave me the $50, and I kept doing that for 12 months. And then, you see, it's funny about the cab thing. You know, you'll read in you know various gossip columns, a former cab driver is now, you know, the king of talk radio mm. and all that crap. Well, as if... You know, driving a cab's a bad thing? Yes. Well, you know, there's plenty of doctors out there probably watching this, you know, professors who drove cabs while they're at uni. It's not a bad thing to be doing. It's no. an honest living. So uh, this message is to reinforce it's not such a bad thing because if it wasn't for driving a cab, I wouldn't be sitting with you fellas today. On a Tuesday what night... Heights you've, what heights you've managed to, to Unbelievable, climb here, yeah. Right? This is the that. zenith of your career, your surely. <laughs> anyway, I'm driving a cab and then on a Tuesday night, the owner, John Mears, Paul Mears, the footballer's dad, and I didn't know Paul at the time, he's only a young bloke. John Mears, the owner of the cab, said, hey, Ray, you want to drive the cab on Tuesday nights? I said, oh, geez, there's no money in it, John. He said, and it was LPG, he said, look, you just put the gas in it. He said, I won't charge you a pain. You go out, take the cab. He said, sitting here at home, you might as well take it out. I said, all right. So the first Tuesday night I drove the cab, I must have got a fare from Parramatta to the city or something, and I'm sitting on North Sydney rank about 8 o'clock. And there used to be a hamburger joint at North Sydney rank near the railway station. And you get a, All the cabbies went there for a feed. So I'm there, not much money on a Tuesday night. And then a call went out for Miller McLaren to North Ride. So I, I grabbed the fare on the radio, no computers in those days. So I knew Miller McLaren was 2UE. And the operator said, it's a 9, nine o'clock pickup. You're sweet with that? I said, yeah, that's okay. So I knew it was the radio station. I didn't know who I was picking up. So I get up there and I picked up a bloke called Mark Collier, who was the news director and filling in at the time for the late John Pierce from 6 till 9. And then Ian Parry Oakton used to do 9 till midnight. So I picked him up, jumped in the front of the cab. I said, where to, sir? He said, uh, North Ride, thanks. I said, okay. And so we got talking. There was no M2 in those days. Down we go, Epping Road and Epping Highway. And he says, oh, yeah, what do you do? And I said, oh. He said, you a uni student? I said, no, no, I'm a race caller. He said, race caller? I said, yeah. You drive a cab on Tuesday night? I said, yeah. He said, I take it you're not a very good race caller. <laughs> I said, shit, I hadn't thought about that. You're probably right. So anyway, in the 25 to 30 minutes in the cab, I convinced him that, you know, I was desperate to try and get a start in radio and I gave him my mum's phone number, Dulwich Hill, because there's no mobile phones back in these days. This mm. is about 1980. So, oh, three months passed and mum said to me one day, a bloke called Mark Collier wants you to ring him. Well, three months later? Yeah, three months later. So I rang him and said, 
Mr. Collier Trey Hadley, he said, oh, glad you rung. He said, are you still driving the cab? I said, yeah. Still calling the race at Appen? I said, no, I've progressed. I'm doing Appen, Bulleye, Nara. He said, geez, you've got three jobs. That's good. He said, I need a traffic reporter. He said, and I thought about you because you'd know your way around Sydney driving that cab. And I said, yeah. So the first time I was on radio was for the late Gary O'Callaghan at his breakfast show. And I rem- it was Navy week. Navy week about 1980, which is October. And they said, you've ever been to Chop before? Oh, I said, of course I've been in a helicopter. I hadn't even seen one, let alone been in one. <laughs> anyway, so I went up the chopper for Navy Week and did traffic reports. And Gary took a shine to me, and he was a very powerful man at the time. And so when I finished, he said, uh, we need a regular traffic reporter, give this bloke the job. So I did. And then 82 came along, and we had two more teams in the competition, Illawarra and Canberra. So Ian Maurice was the sports director, Cole Pearce and Ian Maurice called the football, and they said to me, you know anything about rugby league? I said, oh, of course I do. They said, okay, good, we need an around grounds reporter. So I used to get all the shit games. They'd send me down to Wollongong and mm-hmm. Canberra and all the rest of it. But yeah. that was my entree into it. And then by 80, end of 82, John Tapp came to the place and I formed a relationship with him and he took me on board as his 2IC race caller. And... Um, even though it's 40 years ago, it doesn't seem like that, but that's what happened. That's where it all started. Driving yeah, a cab and driving picking up Mark cab, Collier. Eh? Do, you, do you look more sympathetically on younger people coming through now? Like it's such a, I guess it's like a very competitive industry, right? Mm. And knowing what you had to go through just to get a start, I guess like there's maybe a, a line between like ambition uh, that's an overambition. Mm. Do, you, do you look more favourably or are you a bit more compassionate to young people coming through trying to get a crack? Well, the young people who worked with me in the earlier part of my career would say, no, I was a not a very compassionate <laughs> bastard. And they're probably right. But as I've got older, um, I nurture people now. Um, I'm very proud of the uh, the young people I've nurtured. I mean, Andrew Voss worked with me. He came being a clerk at the Sydney Turf Club and basically I gave me a start calling football and he's a, probably the lead caller now on Fox. Andrew Moore was at the ABC, same thing. He came as a 16-year-old. And a stack of other people. Timmy Gilbert started with me at 2UE. Uh, and But now, more so, uh, not broadcasters, but staff. I mean, I employ yeah. young people um, because they're very capable and I try to help them. And, you know, and I used to get cranky, used to get the shits if they left me. You know, I'd say, I've trained them and they've gone. Now I don't. I mean, I was at a young girl working for me, Hannah, uh, Peter Sterling's daughter, actually, Hannah Sterling. Oh, yeah. Brilliant young person. Um, and... Uh, she was with me for 12 months and then she got an offer from Nova and normally, you know, you think, oh, I'll train her up. And I said, no, love, you go up there and if you think that's where you want to be, that's good. And she's doing well up there. Um, and there are others that over the years that, you know, you train up and go. And one of the things that now because of our success, if young people work for me and then they go somewhere else, there's a bit of a kudos attached to the fact that they work with me, mm. not because of me, but because of the success of the program. So people think, well, two things, they must work hard and they must know what they're doing. And they do. They do. Um, and as a... I mean, one of the other ones that I'm proud of now is Taylor Hill. Mm-hmm. Again, that's Terry Hill's daughter. Um, and she now works for Penny Wong. Oh, really? In federal parliament, yeah. And um, she started with me as a kid. And then she stayed with me for a long while and then she left and went to other things. And now, and she's a, I mean, both Hannah and Taylor, different type of people, but brilliantly talented. What made you mellow? You know, you're saying like early on, you maybe, they wouldn't necessarily call you. Uh, human comp- resources, probably. 
<laughs> nah, I mean, get, getting old. Look, when I started in 82, and you, you blokes are a lot younger than me, you've got to understand that if you made a blue, we used to have these eight-track cartridges, you know, like computers weren't invented. Mm. And if you made a blue, someone had, I don't know whether, can, can we swear? Yeah, 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 so, yeah. Someone would pick up a cart and throw it at your head and say, you fuckwit. <laughs> <laughs> you said, oh, okay, I'm a fuckwit. You know, that's, yeah. that's what I am, apparently. Mm. And that was the culture. And it wasn't just the culture in radio. It was the culture in, in business, you know. I mean, apprentices would be get, you know, get sent out to get a left-handed hammer. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. all that yeah. sort of sh- yeah, yeah. shiking and rubbish and, 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 and give him the shit jobs. And, and that's what it was like in radio. And that's the culture I, I grew up in. And so, I mean, it took me a while to understand as we moved through into a new era that that wasn't a culture that, you know, you could stand by. Mm. And so I'd say, oh, probably, you know, in the last decade or bit, you know, you, you're not just mellow, but you're attuned to the fact that, you know, you've got to be a bit gentler and a bit kinder. That doesn't mean you don't get the shits every now and then, mm. but you just got to, you know, temper that. And I suppose, you know... Uh, the next stage in my life as my children grow up and have their own children, you become a grandfather. You can't be a cranky old prick all your life. You mm. know, you've got to sort of mellow with grandkids. And mm. my kids now say to me, oh, gee, you're a lot better off with the grandkids than you were with us. And I say, oh, <laughs> that's always right. the way, yeah, though, yeah. isn't it? That's just the way uh, life is. Most it. grandparents watching this would agree with me that mm. you, you change in time. But um, What about with, like, fuck-ups on air? Because we listen and, mm. like, I'll hear... You know, they'll be like, there was one a couple of weeks ago where just your intro music just cut out. Oh, yeah. And you're like, I was in Brisbane. oh, okay, well, we, uh, we've we lost the intro music. We'll fix that up. And, like, you can hear in your voice, you're like, well, hopefully that. And then, you know, you keep talking for a yeah. bit and then it doesn't get fixed. And you're like, <laughs> I can I can hear the frustration in your voice. Oh, like, yeah. When's this going to fucking get fixed? What's going on here? <laughs> well, the one you're talking about was Brisbane. Uh, I was at the Ecker. And I do a lot of, I probably do more outside broadcast than anyone in radio over the last 40 years because football was an outside broadcast every time you do it. So the frailties of outside broadcasting everyone knows about, but they shouldn't be frail now. And what had happened, uh, we didn't, because we're a big network now, the Nine Radio Network, we, we, we got some fantastic engineers and we've got some not so fantastic engineers. <laughs> and one of the best I've got, there's two great young blokes that work with me in Sydney, Harish and Luke. And somehow someone decided Harish and Luke shouldn't be sent to Brisbane to save money. And so right. the person that put it together fucked it up. <laughs> so, in fact, we got the 10 o'clock and they had to get someone else into the Sydney studio to take over because uh. I couldn't take calls. The emails didn't work. <laughs> oh, Jesus. I couldn't hear myself back in the cans. <laughs> I couldn't do anything. So we had a frank discussion with management that afternoon. And I said, you've got two choices, boys. Get Harish up here this afternoon or I'll be on a plane back to Sydney to do my show from down there. So Harish arrived... And we didn't have a problem for the rest of the week. There you go. Yeah, there but, you go. Um, I'd say me circa 2000, I would have been on a respirator <laughs> and a defibrillator. <laughs> but I was remaining, as a matter of fact, uh, <laughs> Olivia, my producer, who'd only just, she'd worked with me in Brisbane before, but she now is replacing John Redman, who's gone to work for A Current Affair. Um, I know, bravo. Yeah, good luck, bravo. You ask him, he'll tell you. Yeah. He's, he's a good young good bloke, fella. Yeah, great fella. Anyway, Olivia's a fantastic girl and she's my EP. And she said to me later, and she's very, very quiet, Olivia, she said, you didn't get as cranky as I thought you should. 
And I said, well, Olivia, sometimes there are things we can't solve. And we couldn't <laughs> solve this one. So I said, but I'd made my, my feelings clear to management later in the day in the car on the way back from the Gold Coast. So, uh, yes, that was, a, that was a regrettable day. But strangely enough, the survey came out last week and we went up in the ratings despite that fuck There up. you go. There you go. Yeah, so things work out. Sometimes. Need not worry. You talk about the culture having changed over the years since mm. you started out to the present day. When it comes to calling, has there been a change in that art from your perspective? Not really, but, but I mean, because I've done uh, so much radio broadcasting and so little TV telecasting, I mean, I worked for Channel 9 for about five years as a backup, The Rabbits. He described me as the world's oldest understudy. <laughs> but, uh, and I never wanted to replace Rabs because I thought you were on a hiding to nothing, whoever did the job. Uh, but um, no, I, I, I don't think... One of the things that amazes me about, uh, about, say, the AFL, the AFL TV commentators do a radio call. If you watch Channel 7, they, they call it like they're on radio. It's ball by ball. Right. Whereas TV rugby league callers, whether it's on Fox or Channel 9, uh, do it you know, more passively. They get excited when they need to get excited. Whereas radio is rapid fire. You just can't take a break. You've got to keep talking. Yeah. And you know, the difference is that the score's always on the screen with TV. And John Brennan taught me very early in my broadcasting, rugby league broadcasting career that you can't give the score enough on radio. So I'm, I'm a, a bit of a, a score... Um, I'm not using an appropriate term, but um, I like our callers to give the score a lot. And yep. if they get a phone call from me, it'll be give the fucking score. <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, I know that, you know, giving the score every two minutes sounds like a lot, but it's not. Mm. Uh, I think the record for me with uh, Breno was he called me and he used to have this red felt pen and a pad and he'd, he'd critique my call in the early stages back in the 80s. You say, Hadley, boy, you've done deliciously well today. Deliciously well. <laughs> I say, why? He said, you gave the score 108 times in 80 minutes. Oh, That's the norm. <laughs> and so you, give the sc- you should be giving the score about every 30 seconds, really. Right. Because people tune in and tune out. Yeah, yeah. And if you don't give the score for three or four minutes on radio, it's like an eternity. And if there's an alternative, people will find it. Mm. You know, they'll go somewhere else and get the score of someone. So um, I think that... Um, the people, uh, David Morris, a really experienced caller, gives a score regularly. He's done more football than me over the years. Uh, but some of the young blokes don't give the score as often as they should. And if I happen to be in the car, the producer gets a phone call, tell him to give the score. Joel Kane said the same thing when we interviewed him a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And I was listening to a call the other night on the, on the radio. And I waited for a long time for the score. And I, was, I had him in my head and he was referencing you when he said it as well. So yeah, there you, you can't go. give it enough. I mean, it's the simplest thing to do. That The difficult thing is identifying players, particularly, you know, on the far side of the field and, you know, numbers all look alike. Sometimes the, uh, the South Sydney numbers black on that jumper are hard to see, you know, as opposed to white numbers. And I mean, you're not going to change that. It's just the way things are structured. But... There's all these difficult things attached with calling sport. The easiest thing is to give the score. That's the easiest thing on radio. Give the score. It's, it's that simple. Just give the score, repeat the score, keep giving the score as often as you can. Do you call with binoculars? Um, depends. Well, a funny thing. Now, about 10 years ago, we started calling off the TV from what we call the interactive studio, which is just a bullshit term for a studio with a TV. Hmm. Um, and so when COVID struck, 
And asked that question, yes, I used to call with binoculars. When COVID struck and we couldn't go to grounds anymore, we were calling even Origin off the TV. Now, I said to management, this is a lot easier. This is a lot easier to call off TV. A radio call off TV, I mean. It's a lot easier. The players are easily identifiable. Replays are easy to see. So when Rabs, um, not often he used to seek my counsel on matters, but when Rabs was told he wouldn't be going to Brisbane because of COVID, but he'd have to call off the TV, he got horribly nervous about it because he'd never called off the TV before, despite being a TV commentator. And he called me and said, you've been doing this for a while off TV. What, what, what's the judgment? I said, mate, it's shit easy. <laughs> it really is. And so at the end of the year, him and I caught up. You know, we were good mates. And he said, Jesus, you're right about that TV. He said, how easy is it? I said, well, it'll send you a life by five years if you wanted to because <laughs> you won't have to get in a plane. You hate getting planes. You won't have to go anywhere. And, you know, now I'm, I'm not quite sure about what nine do, but I've spoken to the Fox commentators. Nearly all their stuff's done off TV now. Really, till they go to the ground. Really? And I'm thinking about, you know, long after I've been consigned away from where I'm going, that, say, Olympics, international sporting events, other... Like, you think about Tokyo, right? So, Channel 7, for the first time, there was no radio team sent over by the ABC or anyone else. But you think about the logistics of... Because you get international feeds. You might have your own cameraman for interviews after the events and that, but the international feed is provided by the IAC. So, you think about sending a team of 100... Airfares, accommodation, you know, travel. You know, they've got to be fed. Mm. Wouldn't it be simpler to keep them in Sydney or Brisbane and do it from here? As a caller, do you miss out on a bit of the atmosphere? No, because sound effects are brilliant. So, right, so you can still sort of feel I mean, like sound that. effects are brilliant. I mean, that's one of the things Rabbits, he said, oh, you won't be able to... I said, mate, bump up the sound effects. <laughs> yeah. You think you're there. You think you're there. Yeah. And so, you know, it'll uh, probably, there'll be purists, because when I first started doing it, there were people looking down their nose at us saying, oh, it's not the same unless you're at the game and all that bullshit. And now they're all doing it. It is the same. Yeah. And, and I can remember once, Singo, I was telling the Singo about it, he's a, a purist, you know, and he said, um, you know, he said, this bullshit about calling off the TV. He said, yeah, you got to get there, you know, get there and call it. You know, got to be done. And I said, okay. I said, I'll do it next week. He said, good. So I called it from the studio. I said, that better? He said, I told you it was better. <laughs> I said, bullshit, I was in the studio. <laughs> oh, were you? I said, yes, I was. You know, so, <laughs> I mean, people will believe what they want to believe. But, look, calling off the TV is infinitely easier than calling live. And... You know, when I'm there, I use Carl's Lease 1050s, which is the standard fare for most race callers. They all use Carl's Lease 1050s. And you can see really well, but, you, you know, you've got to have them on a binocular stand, as Rabbits used to. I mean, we used to call it the back of the old uh, Sydney football stadium. I mean, you could, you know, you needed the Carl's Lease 1050s because if you get back to the old Sydney football stadium, right up the back on the western side, you, they're like ants. You know, so you've got to train your glasses on them the whole time. Is that that one like right up the very, very top? Yeah, they built that, that. It's funny with the opening of the new Allianz Stadium and one of the things was, you know, there's far more facilities for ladies, which was 
archaic in the old one. You see the poor girls lining up, going to the toilet at half time. They had two cubicles and 2,000 girls trying to get in. But when they built the broadcast boxes at the back of the old stadium uh, for the first year in 88, they didn't put a toilet up there. Oh, no way. Yeah, so they had the, the radio boxes, so there'd be Thirsty, myself, um, probably Pinky Printer from 2KY and a few others up there calling. And if you want to have a, a leak... You'd have to go down three oh flights of stairs. And you only get, you know, five minutes at half time. And so in the end, we said to the trust, we said, you've got to put a toilet up here. That said, seems absolutely insane. That yeah, well, there's no, well, it was the same thing. It um, was worse at Marathon at Newcastle because <laughs> this is fair dinkum. And Gary Harley, who's an old mate of mine, used to be the lead caller on 2HD. And Gary, you know, even these days, is a fairly large fellow. And you used to climb up a ladder through a manhole in one of the sponsors' boxes and then go across a catwalk to this gantry and be peering over the edge of the the ground, you know? And there was no toilet up there. And the other thing was, was once you all got up there, they'd pull the ladder up for the sponsors' box. And I (laughs) said to Lee Morn, the CEO up there, one day, I said, mate, I don't want to be a narc, but what happens if there's a fucking fire up here? (laughs) I said, how do we get down? I said, where's the parachutes? So anyway, they then decided that they had to put a permit ladder somewhere, but Harley couldn't climb down the ladder anyway, which is very funny, trying to see him get down a ladder. And then finally, this is fair dinkum, so there was up there, there was two TV boxes and probably three or four radio boxes and cameramen. So you've got probably 20 blokes up there. They put one of those caravan portaloos up there with a curtain. Oh. <laughs> so you've got this succession of blokes going to the toilet in this portaloo from a, from a caravan or a mobile home with a curtain pulled across. Oh, my God. So you can imagine the hijinks. I'll be taking photos of Harley before phones, you know. If the mobile phones, then it would have been all over social oh. media. <laughs> it was very, very funny. But yeah, Newcastle, those were the days. Jeez. Jesus Christ. Have they made, what are the new boxes at the new stadium like? Have you seen them? Uh, no, but apparently they're palatial and roomy and, yeah. and as Toilets? you can imagine. Yeah, I'll, I'll find out when I get there on Friday night, of yeah, course. No. But uh, yeah, apparently they're very, very good as you would expect. And shock horror, they've got a toilet as well. Oh, there you go. Good. Mate, you've been very generous with your time. We've got just a couple more things before we, uh, we let yeah. you go. There uh, is a great yarn about you and oh, uh, and the great Buzz Rothfield, or the Mayo Man, as he's known to sort of our. What do you call him, the Mayo Man? Well, just because he, you know, dollop a mayo on the stories here and there. Oh, Buzz! Poor old Buzz. But there's a story about you and him getting into it. I don't know if it was a stink exactly well, the the specifics of the story. There are rumours you mm. you put one on his chin. Is that true? Well, is that look, uh, hyperbole. He, he, there were two people involved in the incident. Good? One was pissed, and one wasn't. <laughs> Now, what had happened, and this is factual, and I, I didn't put one on his chin, I should have, <laughs> but um, I went to call an origin, I was crook, you know, stomach bug or something mm. like that, so I was really crook on the Wednesday afternoon. So the team doctor was Nathan Gibbs, so I went to him and said, mate, I've got gastro, I'm vomiting, and I said, I've got to call this game, and he said, come in, I'll needle you up, stop the, the vo- you know, mm. coming out both ends, so to speak, if you'll <laughs> pardon the expression. So he needled me up. He said, but look, this will last about five hours, six hours maybe. He said, when you finish the game, get back here and go to bed. And you should be right But tomorrow unless you've got another bug and then I'll come and see you. So he was a champion, Black Nathan. Still is. Anyway, so it was sort of the go back in the 80s that after the game, you'd go to a nightclub in Brisbane called Rosie's. And the players would get there and the media was getting there. And it was all before mobile phones and before, you know, 
social media and all that and everyone have a drink and I used to drink a bit back then, I don't anymore. Anyway, so Buzz was, you know, someone I'd worked with and we'd both been around the ground for reporters before I got the job calling the gig. So Buzz got the nickname Buzz because he's a pest. <laughs> like, you That's know, actually, those, I'd never thought to never ask thought that. Never thought about that. I never yeah. thought to ask that. Anyway, that makes sense. So, <laughs> anyway, so Buzz, Buzz rang the room at the Park Royal in Brisbane and said, Hey, you're downstairs, we're on the drink. Come on, we're getting the rosies. I said, Buzz, I'm crook, leave me alone. Ah, yeah, pit weep, piss weak. And, ah, I said, fuck off and leave me alone. Go away. <laughs> anyway, so he kept ringing the room because he's a pest. Yeah. So next thing, there's a bang at the door. Now, I'm in underpants and singlet, crook. So I get to the door and he's Buzz. Come on, let's get out. I said, Buzz, will you piss off and leave me alone? I'm crook. Go away. So his version is that I slip one onto his chin. <laughs> but if you know Buzz, he's got a rather prominent proboscis. Yes. Got a fair hooter on him. <laughs> I slammed the door in his face and his nose was struck by the door. Now, that's my version because <laughs> I would never strike someone in that fashion. No, I'm sure. So anyway... He toddled off, but this is the funniest part. About 10 minutes later, the phone rings again. Leave me alone. And so the classic line from Buzz was, right, you and me in the car park now. <laughs> I said, what are we school kids or something? Leave me alone, I'm asleep. Go away. So the story has grown like Topsy. He's got another version of it. If he were on the podcast, he'd tell his version. That's my version of it. We'd love to get him on. But yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, well, I, I, I wouldn't call him so. Mayo in yeah. the future. He won't come on. I know, I know. He's liable to get the shits about that. But he, <laughs> look, it's funny. He's been a mate of mine for nearly 40 years, Buzz. I mean, we, you know, and, yeah. and you know, he gives you a tickle up every now and then. And yeah, that's all, I also find that interesting about the way the media works is yeah. like, you know, like there's these sort of, it's not, as you say, your friends, but they're kind of functional rivalries, but you'll hear him talk shit about 2GB or you'll read yeah, his column, yeah. but then you guys are all good, like, you know, in another well, setting. you know, look, you know, it's a sort of love-hate relationship, but I basically love him and he hates me. I mean, that's basically <laughs> how it is. No, I mean, look, he's in a combative industry where he's got to come up with column pars every week, mm. and sometimes if he bags the shit out of me, who cares? I mean, at the end of the day, I'll get square with him and bag the shit out of him when I can. And, you know, um, it, it's, it, it's always tempered with good humour. And, I mean, the late Bob Fulton, who was also a mate of Buzz's, and, you know, Buzz used to have this story that Bezo had put his tips in for the tipping panel on a Saturday night after the Thursday, Friday and Saturday <laughs> afternoon game, which is a, a scurrilous thing to accuse the former great coach of doing. Yeah, an immortal. Yeah, yeah which he might have done, by the way. But <laughs> And then, and so, you know... Bozo had this thing where, uh, even in a podcast, I couldn't tell you, he'd, he'd send these notes, hey, such and such, on his text, you know, and he'd say to Buzz, hey, such and such, you know, and then Buzz would say, look at Bozo's calling me. And I said, well, yeah, and so I'd write the same thing back to him. And so it's funny, when Bob passed, um, it was hey, see, dot, 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 and, <laughs> and, and, and Buzz said to me one day, he said, you know, I miss Bozo's text. So it was a sort of camaraderie and you know yeah. and and other people wouldn't understand it you know if they saw it in cold hard type they'd say jesus these blokes must hate each other but not really i mean you know and i still bag him he bags me he used my expression the other day 
in one of his newspaper columns and I blew up. And I, I can get him because he doesn't wake up early like I do. So it was on the Monday morning and it was about the game between the Roosters and Melbourne. And he said in his column, don't touch the sets, don't touch the dolls, don't go anywhere on Friday. You know, so I text him at about quarter to five. I said, hey, fuck face. <laughs> I said, if you're going to steal my lines, give me credit for them. <laughs> so, of course, by seven o'clock, he rings me. He said, oh, you won't believe it, mate. Oh, buddy. He said, oh, it's been subbed out, the subbed out, the subbed out. Yeah, it's always subbed out. Yeah. I said, yeah, pig's ass." <laughs> so, anyway, I said, I'm going to bag the shit out of you on air today for doing this to me. And so, what I didn't know, he does a spot on 2KY. Sky Sports Radio mm. every morning. Must get money for it. He wouldn't do it for nothing. Mm. Anyway, he corrected it on there with Laurie and uh, and the team there with Clarkie and said, oh, by the way, this morning I wrote this. I should be saying that's what Ray Hadley would say for the game on Friday. So then, so I bagged the shit out of him. So then he rings me and says, I've already apologised for doing this. <laughs> so there's another column par. Yeah, right. You know, so anyway, but, you know, it, it's the, what it is. And I'd, I'd like to think that if I die, he'll come to the funeral. Yeah. Not just to make sure I'm dead, but just to make sure that he's there to comfort people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. Uh, I worked with your old man, you know. Oh, re- well, actually, yeah, yeah, no, two no, no, weeks, years and years and yeah. years and years and years ago, years and years and years ago, and um, he uh, uh, unbelievable the success he had with all those all those records back then. Yeah, I know CDs. CDs it's yeah, a it's a different world now, a isn't good, it? Good bloke and. Uh, they tell me you do some impersonations as well. Uh, who tells you that? I mean, Buzz Rothfield will be as close <laughs> no, as no, I no, get to impersonate. Any of my colleagues that you might have a little crack at? Oh, I'm trying to think now who are your colleagues that we might have a crack Drive? at. Oh, Jim Wilson. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he Jim. does a pretty good job. Oh, Jim Wilson, fair income, yeah. fair income, the government. <laughs> yeah. Oh, jeez, oh, the government. Yeah. Oh, what is it? What you know was what the? What were the? Uh, what was? Oh, the Barthy loves the show. Barthy never missed the show. Love you, Barthy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, the Mean Girls. When's Albo going to talk about the Mean Girls? And uh, there should be an inquiry. <laughs> we love yeah, every to five Jim. minutes. We, we love, love Jim. It. It's Jim's good stuff. Good, we get a good laugh out of Jim yeah. every afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose uh, imitation's the greatest form of flattery. Yes, absolutely. That's what they tell me. Yeah, no, it is. It is. Yeah. All right, boys. It's been enjoyable. I've enjoyed it. Thanks very much. We really appreciate you coming in, mate. Thanks, Thanks to Dan as well for hooking it up. We were we were actually we were wondering we we're like Ray's going to come and be like, what the fuck has no. Dan got me into? No, I'm a young bloke. He's uh, he's a good boy and he a good man. He's father of two of my grandchildren and he's uh, he's a fighter and I'm very proud of him. And uh, when he asks me to do things, I usually say yes. Oh well, that's because good because I love him and he's a good boy. Well, it's very nice. Very nice to. To hear that, and we love that. We love you too, Dan. Thank you very much. Good to have a good to have a friend in you now, mate. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, anything really you good, want, mate. boys, I can do. Yeah, beautiful. As long as there's no money involved. <laughs> <laughs> well, we guarantee there's no money involved. Well, yeah, yeah there's absolutely. Yeah, but there is. You know, you can be associated with. Yeah, us. yeah, yeah. You're exactly. now a dear friend of ours. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I look forward to it. Yeah, yeah look <laughs> forward to our continued success. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Thank so, you. Thanks, thanks mate. Could you two just not talk anymore? <laughs>